Thank you, Adam, for filling in for Greg this morning. Thank you for leading us. Thank you for those that serve with you. We're so grateful every single week that you bring us into a time that we can worship, that we can sing, that we can learn, and that we can be reminded about the beauty of who God is. So thank you, brother. If you have a Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, I invite for you to take it and turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. Uh, if you get one of these bulletins when you come in, there's always some notes on the back of that if you want to use that as we reference it through our time together in God's Word. But Exodus 33 is where we're going to pick up. We have been walking through the book of Exodus together on a Sunday morning, I've been walking through the book of Exodus to look at the example and the model and the principles that we see through the pages of Exodus on what it means to be set apart as God's people. Exodus opens up with the people in bondage there in Egypt, and God sends Moses to bring the people out of Egypt. They're going to go down to what is called Mount Sinai. There, God is going to reveal himself to his people, and he's going to tell them this is what it means to be set apart. This is what it means to be my people. This is what it looks like to live a life of faithful obedience to me. In the New Testament, we might think of that word of sanctification. It's the idea that once we are saved and once God forgives us and once our sins are forgiven through the work of Christ on our behalf, that we have now been set apart. We have been sanctified. But there's a lot of confusion in this world today of what does that look like and how do we live in 2023 apart from the world but still living in the world. And so what we've been doing is going through the book of Exodus, looking at what it means to be set apart as God's people. And there are principles, there are precepts, and there are models for us there in the pages of Exodus that we are still that we can still learn from today. So we have been, um, for the last several weeks, we've been in Exodus 32, we've been in Exodus 33. If you think back to Exodus 32, the very first part, we saw where Moses is up on the mountain and God is giving him the law. And while he is up on the mountain, you had Aaron and the rest of the people that were down there at the base of the mountain. And remember, we started talking about the deceit of sin and how sin can present itself, the temptation to sin can present itself, and the next thing we know, we are led into different variations, different ideas different ideas of idolatry. And that is what Aaron and the people then moved into. And then the next time we were in, still in Exodus 32 talking about the effect of sin and how sin can come in and we can be so enamored or we can be callous towards sin in our lives that when we're confronted with sin or when we're challenged with sin, the first thing we want to do, remember that we start to get defensive, we start to deflect, or we start to distort what our sin is. And the last week we were in Exodus 33 and we were talking about about the result of sin and how sin causes that separation between us and God. And yet God is still faithful, even when we are not faithful. And that God still loves us to send his son, even when we didn't deserve it. And we looked last week at the result of sin and what sin does to us. This morning, I want you to be with me in Exodus 33. We're going to pick it up in verse 12, and we're going to go down through verse 16. And what I want to focus on this morning is our response to sin. Now, you're going to see in this narrative, in this passage, you have two primary characters. You have Moses and God. But there's examples that we have from Moses on how Moses responds to sin that I think that we would be well to mark and to model 
emulate, maybe emulate is the best word, that we would do well to emulate, to learn from Moses' example on how he dealt with sin and to put these practices in our life when we are faced with sin and how do we respond to sin in our lives. So we were last week we were in Exodus 33 verses 1 through 6. Then we're going to skip past verses 7 through verse 11 because as you look in there and you can read in there what happens is is God tells Moses, "All right Moses, <coughs> you all have sinned. I'm not really sure what's going to happen at this point, but I want you to be in a state of mourning. I want you to take off the ornaments. I want you to look like you're in mourning because you sinned against me. But good news, I'm still going to send you to the promised land. I'm still going to send an angel before you. I'm still going to drive out those people. So go ahead, get up, get the people, and get on the move. And then verse 7 through verse 11, it gives us this, it, it gives us this, this picture that while they were camped and while they were moving as a people, there was this tent of meeting, and it was out away. It was a part from all the regular compound, if you will. And it tells us in verse 7 through 11 that that is where God would meet with Moses. And so that tent was out there. Moses would go out to the tent. As he went into the tent, the presence of God would come down upon the tent. And it says that God would speak to Moses as a man face to face. And so it's this idea that when we come into verse 12, that Moses has now come to God. And he's having a conversation about, all right, God, we've sinned. We recognize we've sinned. Now this is how we're going to respond to our sin. I hope this morning every single one of us will look at where we are at in the story. Because the Bible is very clear that every single one of us in this room has sinned against God. And it's not a matter that your sin is a one-level sin and someone else's level sin is a half-level sin or somebody's sin in here is this color and someone else's sin is that color. The reality is, is every single one of us in this room has sinned against God. And the, one of the biggest questions you'll answer in your entire life is what are you going to do with your sin? So there's a lot of people out there in this world today that try to say, well, you can cover up your sin. Or you can ignore your sin. Or you can hide your sin. Or you can just not mess with your sin because sin is just a construct put together by a religious community. But there is still the question of what do we do with our sin. So I hope that we will all find ourselves at one place or another in this passage because every single one of us, if we have not yet, if we aren't currently, will at one point in our lives respond to the reality of sin in us. So listen to how the book of Exodus gives this narrative account in Exodus 33. I'm going to read verse 12 through verse 16 just for the sake of context, and then, then let's back up and let me show you several of these examples that Moses gives us of how he deals and responds to sin. Chapter 33 and verse 12, the Bible continues to say, Moses said to the Lord, See you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know, know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. 
For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? I pray that God adds understanding and application to his word this morning. We come into a brief snapshot. We come into a brief conversation between Moses and God. We come into a brief moment where we see Moses responding to the sin of himself and to the sin of the people. And he's coming to God and we see how Moses deals with this. The first thing that I want you to notice with me in the example that Moses gives us is that we go to God. You may think that's a little bit simple, but think about this. When it comes to our sin and when it comes to us addressing our sin, the first step of responding to our sin is going to God. If you look there at the very first part of verse 12, it is Moses saying to the Lord. It's not the Lord coming and saying to Moses. It's not a committee coming and saying something to God. It's Moses realizing that because he has sinned and because the people have sinned, the first step, the first step of responding to sin is going to God. Sometimes if you've been married long enough, you will understand in some marital conflict, not that you have any marital conflict, but you may know somebody that does. And sometimes when it comes to marital conflict, he and her, they will be off on the side. And the only way that you're going to bring about any kind of reconciliation and any kind of harmony is someone has to initiate. Someone has to go to someone else. And the example that we see of Moses here in this passage is that he goes to God. Why does he have to go to God? Well, because sin has caused separation. When we sin against God, that causes a separation between us and God. You go all the way back to chapter 32. You see how the separation unfolds. You can go back even farther to Genesis chapter 3. When you have Adam and you have Eve and they're in the garden and they sin against God by eating the fruit of the forbidden tree. What happens? You remember at the end of chapter 3, God takes them, drives them out of the garden. It's a picture of separation. Or if you were to think just in this same chapter, in chapter 33 and verse 3, as God is saying to Moses, Moses, you all leave, you all go to the promised land, but I'm not going with you. What does he say in verse 3? But I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. God has made it very clear in his word that when we sin, that sin causes a separation. So that is why we must go to God when we understand that we have sinned against God. Now there are people in this world that will say, that will say, well what is the big problem? So I have sinned and I have been separated from God. Who cares? Well the problem is, is that this separation then leads to isolation. And when we find ourselves isolated, that isolation then leads to spiritual starvation. And we wonder why we have so many Christians in this world today, or we wonder why we have such darkness in this world today, or we wonder why we have so many people in this world today that seem that they are so far away from God. It's because their sin has led to separation. That separation had led to, has led to isolation, and the isolation has led to starvation. And so it's not that we have a whole group of people today that are rebelling against God as much as we have a whole group of people today that are spiritually starved. That's what Cain says in Genesis chapter 4 when God says, You killed your brother. You've committed murder. I'm banishing you. Cain says, Oh no, the isolation, the banishment will be too much. So the example that Moses gives us here in chapter 33 
<coughs> excuse me, is he goes to God. He goes to God because he understands that the sin of him and the sin of the people have driven them away from God. And the longer they're away from God, the more spiritually weak they will become. The more anemic they will become. The more isolated they will become. That is why it is always so much easier to address the problem as soon as the problem comes. Worked with a man one time, and he was bragging about he and his wife's ability to have conflict. And he shared with me one time that he and his wife went through a season where he didn't speak to her for seven days. I said, so what, what happened? She moved out. He said, oh, no. She was right there in the house. I said, so what happened? You moved out. He said, oh, no. I was, I was right there in the house. I said, so what, did you all stay in different bedrooms? He said, no, no, no. We watched TV together. We ate meals together. We slept in the same bed together. But we did not speak for seven days. Days And I said, well, why in the world would you do that? He said, well, I wasn't going to speak first. And yet how many times do we get reminded of our sin with God, but we come to God and say, God, I'm too stubborn to go to you. God, I'm unwilling to go to you. God, I am unrepentant to go to you. And we forget that the first response to sin is that we go to God. God. Why, why must we go to God? Because God did not move away from us. Our sin, we chose to move away from God. I remember, and I'm sure it probably didn't start with him, but I remember Adrian Rogers, a great storyteller from a generation ago, but I remember listening to him preach, and he told the story about an elderly couple driving down the road. And as they're driving down the road, the wife is over in the passenger seat, the passenger seat and she looks over at the husband and says, Honey, do you remember back in the day? Back in the day when we used to sit next to each other in that bench seat of that pickup truck and we just drive down the back roads. Do you remember those days, those, those sweet days that we were just, just so much in love and so affectionate? And the older man looks over at his wife and just with a dry sense of humor and says, I didn't move. It's the idea that sometimes in our Christian life we start to think, well, I am so dry, I am so distanced, and we start to think that God has moved from us. The reality is, is when you and I sin and we separate ourselves from God and we isolate ourselves from God, we are the ones that move away from God, which is why the first step of response that we see modeled there in Moses is that we go to God. And not just that, you see that in verse 12 and 13, but then if you get down to verse 14 and 15, we see the next step that Moses gives us, and that is that he submits to God. Now, it can be a little bit confusing depending on your English translation because verse 14 and 15, you have Moses reminding God of what God had said, and then you also have Moses saying, God, please not do what you said after that. So in verse 14, he says to God, God, you told us, and my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. So he's quoting God back to God. But then he is referencing earlier in chapter 33, but he says, because of our sin, your presence will not go with us. And so Moses is looking at God and saying, God, here we are. Here I am. I am coming to you. I do not want anything apart or apart from or before or more important, I don't want anything but your presence. He is completely coming and submitting himself to God. It's not a matter of possessions. It's not a matter of comfort. It's not a matter of health. It's not a matter of pleasure. It's not a matter of man's opinion. He is coming and he is submitting himself to God and saying, God, I am pleading for your presence in my life. Sometimes you go to the store 
seemed like the grocery store is the best place to go and find this. You go in the grocery store and you make your way around. Eventually you find a wearied parent, some undisciplined children, and they're making their way through the grocery store, through the, through the, the, the store. And at some point, if you follow them around long enough, that little undisciplined, black-hearted, sinning child will eventually start to throw a fit. And they will start to have the attitude of, I didn't get something I wanted, or I didn't get something I asked for, or I didn't get something in the timing that I wanted. it. And you will start to see what we call a tantrum. You know why they're throwing a tantrum? Because they think... They think that their entitlements are being stepped on. They start to think that they have a right. They start to think that they have something they are owed. They start to think that they have some type of position. And when that is not being satisfied, they start throwing a fit. We as adults do the same thing. We come to God and say, God, I, God, I, I deserve to have money. I deserve to have health. I deserve to have happiness. I deserve to have possessions. I deserve to have these things that I want. And we, re- we, we, we so easily forget we do not deserve anything, much less the presence of God. So Moses says he's coming to God. He is saying, God, I understand that you are God. I understand that we have sinned against you. So I'm coming to you, submitting myself to you, saying, God, please do not withdraw your presence from us. We, in 2023, have become very comfortable with living Apart from the concern or the care of the presence of God. Because we in 2023, we can come in this place. And we have the equipment. We have the amplification. We have the seats. We have the lights. We have the air conditioning when it works. And we have all of these things that are taking place. And we can come in and we can do church. With or without the presence of God. You can get up in the morning and you can go to work. And you can come home from work, you can eat your food, you can watch your television, you can pursue your hobbies, you can do all these things without the presence of God. And that is one of the subtle deceits of sin. Sin makes us think that we do not need the presence of God. And yet here in chapter 33, when Moses realized that, yeah, we're going to go on to the promised land, yeah, we're going to go ahead and possess the land that's promised us, yes, we're going to get all the things that we wanted and all the things that God said except for the presence of God, Moses said, no, that's not okay. So when he realized that their sin had caused separation, and when they realized the sin had separated them from the presence of God, Moses said, full stop, hold up, God, I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to submit myself to you because your presence matters. Now you may say to yourself, well, Spence, why does the presence of God matter so much? Why did it matter so much to Moses then? Why does it matter so much today? And here is my answer. Because a lack of presence of God equals a lack of purpose. When we do not have the presence of God, we don't have a purpose for being. An age-old question, centuries old, is why are we here? And so you will have people, especially in secular academia, and, and they will come along and they will try to propose philosophies and ideas and theories about why we exist. And so you have people that come along and say, well, you know what? Millions and billions of years ago, a couple of cells got together, then a couple of more got together, then a few more got together, and wada-bing, bada-boom, and all of a sudden now 
here we are. They tried to explain the purpose for why we exist and the purpose for why we are here as chance and randomness and some sort of evolution that is apart from the hand of a creator. But what does God say? I have created you in my image. And I've created you with a purpose. 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us for whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And yet we're reminded all throughout Scripture, and even Moses understood that the purpose of the people, the purpose of being God's people, was the presence of God. The purpose of you and I living is to bring glory and honor to God and to tell other people about Jesus. The purpose for why we are here is not some random chance of accidental fate. The reason why we are here is found in who God is. So he says, I'm going to submit myself to you because your presence is what gives us purpose. You know what an incredible waste of time and effort it would be if we came in here every single week for no reason? Can you imagine what it would seem like to a society if every single time we got up and we opened this book and we talked about this book and yet this book didn't matter? Oh, brothers and sisters, do you understand that it's not a matter of knowledge? It's not a matter of saying, well, we have head information. It's a matter of the presence of God. And so Moses says, I understand that my sin, it causes separation, and so therefore I'm going to go to God. I understand that my sin, it causes me to be removed from the presence of God. So I'm going to submit myself to God, and I'm going to say, God, please, please do not move me without your presence. And that desperation, that determination, that utmost humility to say, God, here I am. But there's a last one. There's a last example that Moses gives us. It's in verse 16. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. Moses is asking a question. He starts off with going to God and saying, God, we have sinned, and God, that causes separation. And God, I am asking. I am submitting myself. I am submitting the hearts of these people. We are coming to you. God, please do not remove your presence from us. God, please reconcile us to you. But then at the last part of verse 16, he uses this word, so that we are distinct. And that idea of distinct means to be apart. It means to be set apart. It means to be sanctified. It's something that marks them, identifies them, and separates them amongst all of the other people. The other day I was trying to find a grease zert. A grease zert is just simply a, uh, a little type of a screw hootus, a little bolt hootus that you screw in a piece of equipment and you insert grease in through that grease zert. Well, most, uh, most people, they have a certain range of sizes, of diameters of these grease zerts. I so happen to have a Chinese motor that was built with an unfriendly uh, perspective towards, you know, white electricians. And so it was one of those things that I went to try to replace the greaser and I had easily a hundred different types of grease certs and none of them fit. 
So I take my little greaser and head off to the parts store. The first parts store doesn't have it. The second parts store doesn't have it. The third parts store I get to, they find it in the back and underneath the shelf amongst all the cobwebs and the dust. And they look at me and go, why in the world do you have something like this? I don't know. I didn't create it. I didn't build it. I just need another one. What was I trying to do? I was trying to find something that was so distinct and so set apart because of its nature. See, brothers and sisters, there are sometimes when God sets you apart and I apart as people created by him, we are then defined by God. So Moses here in the passage, <coughs> excuse me, Moses here in the passage, he gives us this last example because when he comes to God, he says, God, how will we be known as peculiar people? How will we be known as distinct people? How will we be known as set apart people? The reason that we are known by who we are known is because who our God is. In other words, that he understood that who they are, their identity was defined by God. You see, you go back to Exodus 32 and at the very base of idolatry is this them, man, trying to find an identity apart from God. And that's what Aaron and the rest of them were doing. They said, we want to have our own gods, and we want to make our own rules, and we want to make our own decisions, and we want to have our own right from wrong. And so they put together these idols, which is why you see in the Ten Commandments. The first couple of Ten Commandments have to deal with idolatry. So he says, the only definition we have of who we are is found in you. Where do we get that from, Spence? Well, you think about the idea of who we are. We were created by God. That's Genesis chapter 1. Every single one of us were created by God. What does that mean? That name means that then God defines who we are. God defines humans as set apart from animals. He defines human as set apart from nature. He defines human, his creation, set apart from everything else. We get the definition of who we are because of who God is is. And not just that we are created by God, but that we are loved by God. This is John chapter 3. God defines who we are because of his love for us. If it wasn't for him sending his son to die on a cross, we would all be sitting here this morning condemned sinners headed for hell. And we would be defined as such. But because God loved us so much, he sent his son to die for us so that if somebody repents of their sins, confesses their sin, seeks forgiveness, by God, through Jesus Christ, we can then be saved by God. That's what Titus 3 tells us. Because of his great mercy, he caused us to be born again by the washing, regeneration, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so Moses understands, Moses understands that when it comes to our response to our sin, we need to understand that it's not a matter of us defining sin, or it's not a matter of us defining reconciliation. It's not a matter of us defining right from wrong or what is up or down. We understand that we are thus defined by God. And when God says we have sinned against him and we need to repent and, for and seek forgiveness from him, those are the definitions that we pursue. Because how you are known and what you are known by has more to do with what God says about you than what man says about you. See, there's lots of things in this room that you could describe me as. You might describe me as extremely muscular. You might describe me as extremely dapper in appearance. You might, might describe me as short or tall or plump or rotund. I don't know how you might describe me. 
And all those descriptions, while they may have a certain amount of merit, there is only one description that matters. That I am known by God. And of all the descriptions that man can put upon me, and of all the descriptions that you might assign to me, the only definition that really matters to me is that I am a child of God. That is the only definition. So here in chapter 33 and verse 16, Moses says, huh, God, we need to be where you're at. God, we need to submit ourselves to you because, God, we find the definition of who we are in you. So then how do we take this and apply this to our core values? So Moses is coming to God and he's responding to God. And he says, oh God, I'm going to come to you because I realize my sin and I realize my separation. God, I'm going to submit myself to you because I realize my sin has taken me away from your presence. Oh God, I'm going to come to you because the definition of who I am and who I seek to be is found in you. So then how do we take that and put this into the core values of the church? To build families, to teach the Bible, to be the church. Few ideas and I'm done. <clears throat> we need to understand that homes train generations. That homes train the generations. Exodus 33. Moses is not just with him and his peers. There is a whole generation that is there. And there's a generation that's going to come after Moses. So when we think about how do we build families, we understand it's in the home that generations are trained. And how are they trained? Well, too often these days we have homes that are teaching children how to prioritize, how to pursue, and how to perform. And they have this idea that these, these, these teenagers and these children, they are being taught what it means to follow after God by what they're being taught in the home. And as his parents and as his grandparents, aunt and uncles, other adults in the community and adults in the church, we need to understand that the way that we respond to sin is the way that they will respond to sin. And it's not just the way you perform or look here. It's the way you behave and live there. Because generations are being trained in the home. And it matters on how we Teach our kids to recognize their sin and to respond to their sin. And it matters, the example we give to our children of how we address our sin, how we deal with our sin, and how we repent of our sin. It's not just that, but there's another application point that flows out of this, per this passage. is that purpose follows repentance. Purpose follows repentance. Repentance. The way you find your purpose in life is not going and getting a degree. The way you find your purpose in life is not going and getting a better job. The way you find your purpose in life is not going out and, and, and pursuing a career. The way you find your purpose in life is not how many people that are following you on social media. The way you find your purpose in your life is you repent of your sin before God, and then God shows you his plan, God shows you his purpose, and God sets you on a trajectory of following in faith after him. And this, this idea of purpose comes after repentance. We have a whole generation of young people today that the question is, is what are you going to do when you grow up? Who gives a rip about what they're going to do to pay their electric bill? We should be concerned about what they're going to do for the kingdom of God. And yet we get, we get so centered on this idea of purpose is found apart from God. But yet when I'm in sin, 
and I'm disobedient in my sin, and I'm unrepentant in my sin, and I'm rebellious in my sin, the purpose that God has for me is not being lived out. And then this last one, and I'm done. God defines the church. How do we plug in this passage of Exodus 33 into life today? We understand that God defines the church. So it's not a matter of what I think or you think or an association thinks or denomination thinks, the popular opinion thinks or the community thinks or the survey says. What matters is what God says. And we need to be asking ourselves the question, Does God see us as a distinct body of believers? Does God see us as a set-apart family of faith? Does God see us as a people that are committed and devoted to the work he has given us to do in Wellston? And it's not a matter of what I think or what you think. The question is, what does God Thing. And Moses comes in and he understands that the thing that separates the Jews or the Israelites, the thing that separates them from all the other people on the face of the earth, verse 16, is the presence of God, the control of God, their devotion to God. And may that be the desire of this church. And when it comes to what we hope for and what we enjoy and what we pursue, may it be defined by God. Moses comes into this passage. Sin is already present. The question is how will they respond to the sin? So this leads us to where we are at this morning. The question is not is there sin amongst us? The question is how will we respond to that sin? And as I've said to you in the weeks past, every single one of us in this room is going to respond in one way or the other. Some of us will respond by just going through these final motions and leaving. Some of us will respond by saying, well, I need to try better or I'm going to do better. Some of us are going to respond by saying, well, you know what, maybe next time. And we move on down the road. Some of us are going to respond this morning by saying, well, you know what, I should, I should talk about God with that. I should talk with God about that later. Maybe there's someone in this room this morning that needs to respond by saying, God, what do I need to do now? Every single one of us is going to respond. The question is, is how are you going to respond? The way that we are going to frame our time of response this morning is multifaceted. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand. In a moment, as we stand, I'm going to pray. We'll have some ushers that will come up. And after I pray, we will begin to collect the offering the same as we did yesterday morning or the last Sunday morning. Also, during that time, we'll have some pastors that are up here at the front. If you need prayer something that you need to talk about with one of the pastors, they will be here at the front. There will be another opportunity that we will be here, and we will be, Adam and and those that are serving with him will be here, and and will be leading us in worship. And so your response may be different. You may respond this morning by by giving to the work of the Lord and by giving your tithes and your offerings as a plate as pastor in front of you. 
You may respond to God this morning by coming and saying, I need prayer. Or maybe there's something you need to pray about with God up here at the front. Or maybe you're just responding by worshiping with God this morning. These next few moments is just a time that we as a church respond to however God leads us to respond to Him. Will you stand with me this morning as we pray and as we prepare to respond to God and His Word this morning?